All right, well, welcome to our final session of Ephesians 1 through 3, the grand finale. I'm happy that you all are here for the grand finale, because the grand finale is grand. If you've read ahead, you know this. these last eight verses of Ephesians 3 are just beautiful, plain and simple. And frankly, all I have to do is read them and probably walk out the door and you'll be encouraged. I don't have to say anything else about them. They're just spectacular. But fortunately, I've got some time to talk about them, and I have a lot of things I could like to say about them. And I'll, I hope they're useful things. So let's, let's begin with prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to gather before your word, before Ephesians one more time, and close the first three chapters out. ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word and change our hearts as a result. In your son's name, amen. All right, so you all have the handout, I hope. Um, Let me get mine up. That's not the right one. It's this one. And then it says you can't find it. Which is always funny when I make these notes and then I email them off and then it says, I don't know where it is on your your local computer. <laughs> Why don't I just use someone's notes? Yeah. That way I'm tracking with what my thoughts are. So we come to verse 14, and as I showed you last week, if you compare verse 1 and verse 14 of chapter 3, you'll notice they start the same way. For this reason, I, Paul, he said in verse 1, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, and then he just tailed off and he didn't finish the sentence. He put a dash there. Well, we put a dash there when we translate it because he didn't even finish the sentence. I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, for you, the Gentiles. Oh, by the way. And he went into essentially what's a parenthesis, a little excursus into explaining his ministry and explaining the mystery that he'd been talking about, which was all very useful information. You can listen to last week's um, discussion on that. And it's very helpful. But then... you see, he starts again in verse 14. I, it's like, it's, it's like he, he was going to do verse 14 and verse 1, and something happened, and he, he went, the Spirit told him to go here. And now he's getting back to what he wanted to do all along, which is verse 14. This is what he wanted to do all along. Verse 14, in essence, follows chapter 2 directly, or you could think of it that way, because all those verses between it are really just a, a parenthetical aside, like a little appendix that he stuck in there and says, oh, by the way, here's more stuff that's really good I want to tell you about. But here's what I was really about to do when I started. Verse 1, I was going to bow my knees. And if you look at the way he writes it, if you have a literal translation like the ESV or the King James or the New American Standard, if you look at, well, he says, I bow my knees to the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. But in verse 3, he doesn't, there's, there's like something missing. There's, a, there's a, something missing there. 
it shows up in the NIVs and, and the Holman Christian Standards and the New Living Translations because they add it because Paul didn't put it there. And it's the simple little words, I ask or I pray. If you look in the ESV, you won't see it. So it's like he left it out. It's okay to put it in there because the idea is clearly he was praying. It's obvious this is a prayer when you when you go down past 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. But he doesn't actually say it. He says, I just bow my knees that you might know that he might give to you, right? I bow my knees that he might give to you without saying to ask that he might give to you. He's missing that verb, I ask or I pray. And, and like I said, modern translations will add that. And that's actually perfectly fine. I'm not here to say that's bad. It's fill in the blanks. Paul, you left a word out. But when I saw it, I just wondered, since the I pray, I ask is not there, it's interesting that he said, I bow my knees. He did say that explicitly. And then I was wondering, well, what if I did a little search on how often do people bow their knees in prayer? And I was surprised to find out that there is no other mention in the New Testament of this phrase, I bow my knees. None. And I was like, every other instance of I bow my knees or somebody bows, it's always in submission to authority. It's like they bow their knees. Well, it says in Philippians 2, every knee will bow. That kind of submission, including the unsaved, the people, the devils, the demons. Everybody's going to bow their knees to Christ on that day in submission to the Lord. So every other example of I bow my knees in the New Testament has to do with submission, not with prayer. And I was wondering, I wonder, maybe that's one of the things Paul was trying to communicate here. Obviously, he's praying because what he says in the next few verses is a prayer, but maybe he's saying, I submit, I submit to my Lord in this prayer. And if you think about what he just talked about in the first 13 verses, how did he say it? He says, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. Don't be concerned. Don't be discouraged in verse 13 for my afflictions. It's basically, remember, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. It's like he's saying, I'm willing to submit to this situation in prison because I'm the prisoner of the Lord. It's, the Lord put me in prison. This whole letter is, it's God's will for me to be in prison and i I'm submitting to God and I'm happily submitting to God to write to you and to be your apostle and to build your faith. So maybe Paul, when he says, I bow my knees, is less talking about his prayer posture and more talking about, I'm just submitting to God and I'm going to go forward with this letter. Obviously, he's praying, but the I bow my knees also indicates his submission. Submission in the situation here. But, as we know, it's also a prayer posture. Now, when I did the search, of course, I didn't find any bow my knees in the New Testament, but I did in the Old. And if you think back to your Sunday school or just your common knowledge or you've read it, you can think of times where saints of old have bowed their knees. There's one that probably pops into your head without much thought. Who is famous for bowing his knees in prayer? Daniel. Daniel. 
And I listed the reference for that. That's what got him in the lion's den, right? Daniel 6. You can read about it where they say if anybody prays to someone other than the king, to the lion's den he goes. And Daniel said three times a day I bow my knees in prayer, and he did. That's one. There's several examples, actually. And another one I listed, which is interesting, you may not be as aware of it, is 1 Kings 18:42. is Elijah, the prophet Elijah. Um, that is on the occasion of if you, the Elijah stories, which of course I have, uh, I'm studying for future class. Elijah bursts on the scenes, and the first thing we know about him is that he prayed to stop the rain for to cause the drought. We don't know anything else about him, but at the end of well, when God says it's finally time to start raining after three years. God tells them, basically, it's going to start raining, but it doesn't start raining immediately. Elijah actually has to pray, and he has to pray pretty hard. He asks, if you read that text, it's interesting. He bows his knees, and he's praying, not once, but multiple times, to get the rain to come. And that is another example of bowing knees. So Paul bows his knees to the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Verse 15, right? And bowing his knees to the Father, this should conjure up memories of what we've already gone through. Tie this back to the very first, well, the third verse of the book. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which so happens to be the same verbiage Peter used in 1 Peter, if you listen to the message this morning. That same phrase Peter uses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how in that first session we were talking about how those first 14 verses are primarily about the blessedness of God the Father, blessing, choosing to bless choosing to take the community that he had eternally with his Son and Holy Spirit and give it out to creatures. He wanted to expand his fatherliness to not just be the father of the Son, which he had always been, but he also wanted to be the father of, he wanted to create. He wanted to share and give life to created things and be the father of some of them who happen to be, when it says they were chosen before the foundation of the world. Verse 414. So God, at his core, is a father. And a father is one who gives life, who sustains, who protects. He's an out, outward-looking, outward-giving entity. That's who a father is. And as a result of him being the father and creating, I like how Paul says it here. He's the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So all families, all creatures, everything is proceeds from the father as he created them. And, and what's really fascinating is I, if you notice the notes, is I put the, well, I put a transliteration of, that's not the Greek. It didn't print. I guess the printer up there is anti-Greek. 
doesn't know how to print Greek. But if you look at the two words, you see they're similar. You see they're derived from one another. It's patera is father, and patria is a family, which is headed by a father. It, the words are together. So the idea Paul is saying here, he's emphasizing the father is the creator of all these other fathers and all these other families and everything descends from him. Everything's connected ultimately back to the Father who's the source of this life-giving fatherliness. And, and the point of this text primarily, because one thing you can get hung up on, and I like, I'm a geek who gets hung up on this, is I try to find out, well, who are these families in heaven? I mean, do, 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 do angels have... <laughs> Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Well, it is because we know that Jesus taught there's no marriage in heaven. And right. all his other teachings are principalities and powers, mm-hmm. and, you know, that kind of thing like that. So family in heaven just... It's, 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 a, it's, it's a weird it's thing. Odd. It doesn't fit in with any other... Anything else that's revealed in Scripture, I would say. And you're correct. It's, uh, it's not. It's like it makes us think and we can speculate. We don't know the answer to it. But it, then you step back and go, wait a moment, the word is patria. He's, he's, the emphasis isn't on who these people are. And, I mean, maybe the families in heaven are the saved ones, us, up there. I don't know. Maybe that's it, possibly. I can't say that that's right or wrong. But Paul's not, he doesn't care about the families in heaven and earth. He's just saying, this is the Father who created them all. And they're all, they all are sourced back to him. He gave them life. Everything is derived from him. Their names are even... Under him, he's the head of all. It's, it's Paul basically praying. He's, he's focused on the Father, not on whoever these offspring are, whether what they look like and who they might be. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to speculate, but that's all we can do is speculate. We don't know what a father, a family in heaven is, yeah, what he meant by that. About that is since he groups them together, then it's a little hard to sort. It's because of the family in heaven, it's a little hard to sort the following because everything following makes sense in terms of the church on earth. But a family in heaven, it doesn't really sort of extrapolate. Because if I might think that the people have died and you know are mm-hmm. in the presence of Jesus, mm-hmm. that's the family of heaven. But they don't need these things in a, in a sense, right? Because they're in, a, they're in a different state than we're in, right? That, so they're experiencing Jesus even though they don't Possibly. have bodies. They're, they have a different relationship with Jesus than we do. We're, we're not. We haven't arrived, but they've arrived, and so I'm right. not sure how you attach that. Attach it to the prayer. The stuff that comes up next. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, what is, how does that connect? Um, other than maybe if you take what he said in chapter 2 about we've already in the past ascended at the right hand of God the Father, and so in a sense the family in heaven is us somehow spiritually because we're already seated in heavenly places I don't know. Maybe about what Eric Tobeski shared that maybe it's related Mm -hmm. to what he was sharing of our connected with Christ in every possible place. Yeah, he was he was taken right from Ephesians two there without saying it. Mm -hmm. If you were in this class you recognize what he said. Mm -hmm. We are in union with Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, seated at the right hand. Yes. He went right through that without saying it was Ephesians Mm -hmm. two. But you, that's exactly where he got that from, precisely. And perhaps, perhaps uh, if the family in heaven is us spiritually, I don't know. It's it's weird to think about.
Okay, so that's, that's who he's praying to, the Father. He's bowed his knees. He's in submission. He's in a posture of prayer. And then, then he asks without saying ask. I already said that, right? He doesn't say ask. He just bows the knee that so that, and I, I've got the text divided into three. There's actually three so that's in the Greek, and I split them out. You don't see this in your English very well because they like to change words up and mix them. There's a so that at the beginning of 16. There's a so that at the beginning of 18. And there's a so that at, in the middle of 19, 19b. So there's like, I'm, I took that as like, there's three groupings of requests. And the first one is strength. Strength for a purpose. Strength for Christ to dwell in you. And the way it can read, if you read my translation, so that he might give to you according to the wealth of his glory to become mighty with power through his spirit in the inner man for Christ to dwell through faith in your hearts and love fixed and founded. That's, that's, that packs a punch. And I, there's a lot we can say about that. But essentially, it's like one big long so that. And I summarize it as, Basically, he wants those whom he's praying for, those the Ephesians in particular, and anyone who reads it afterwards, who calls themselves a believer in Christ, he wants them to become mighty with power through his spirit for Christ to dwell. It's like, and, and if you think about it, it's an interesting request. It's like, how often do we pray for this kind of stuff? I mean... We might if we're praying through Paul's prayer, but how often do we pray for a person or a group of people to become mighty enough and strong enough and strengthen in the, God, the power of the Holy Spirit so that Christ may dwell in their hearts? That's what Paul's praying for. I mean, it, it should maybe we should learn from him and emulate what he's praying for. When you, one of the things you can pray for when you pray for collect groups of people, churches, or individuals even, is that they would be, that Christ would dwell in their hearts, but it's interesting that it, he's saying, it's like they need power for that to happen. They need strength, and the strength comes from the Spirit. And it's something that's done in the inner man. So the inner man takes away the kind of the physical component. It's not so that we can be powerfully strong and healthy and leap tall buildings in a single bound kind of stuff. But it's an inner man strength. And it's an inner man strength that can support the dwelling of Christ in us. It's like we need strength for Christ to dwell in us. And we'll, I'll talk about, I'm going to flesh that up a little bit later. I just want to go through the list right now and then, then I'm going to come back. And I'll explain how how that makes more sense. Because if you think about it, when we are when we first believe, back in Ephesians one, the Holy Spirit seals us. And we know from scriptures like this and elsewhere that that, that involves an indwelling. So the Spirit of God with Jesus and the Father, the Trinity, take up residence in our hearts from the moment, the moment we're born again, and they stay there. But it's interesting that he's praying. 
He's praying that Christ would dwell in your hearts, and and it's going to take strength to do that. And it requires your faith. There's the, the word through faith, which, as Eric said this morning in the message, that's how this is all appropriated, through the faith. We just believe. We believe. That's We believe that this is true for us, and God just amazingly does the work. And he does it in love there at the very um, kind of the end of this request at the end of 17. He does it in love. So he's got faith. He's got love. He's got, you see the Trinity at action. He's Christ dwells through the Spirit. He's praying to the Father. You've got the Trinitarian action going on here. It's just an amazing text. And I'll, I'll unpack it a little more a little later, but I just wanted to list it all out there for you, kind of like an outline. And then there's another so that at the beginning of verse 18. So I consider this as like a second request. Perhaps it's built upon the first. The first, he's praying first that you be strengthened, Christ would dwell. And the second one is that if you read 18 and 19, I'll read it in my translation, so that you may be in a position to grasp with all the holy ones what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And so know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. So the second so that is is like to, to grasp these four dimensions and to know the love of Christ, which is surpassingly huge and great also, or perhaps are the, one and the same. We'll talk about that later. So there's another request here that to grasp with all the holy ones, with, together with other people, to grasp just how surpassingly great the love of God is, plus these depth, height, width, length, dimensions, something big. We're supposed to grasp that. He's praying that they would grasp that. And then there's the final request, the end of 19, the final so that, and it's the ultimate one, so that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. So that's, oh, that's obvious, filled with all the fullness of God. Yeah, well, that's clear, clearly where Paul was going. What does that mean? Now, this is all, we'll, we'll spend some time unpacking this. I'm just listing them out. The first one, I believe the first one builds, allows you to accomplish the second one, which ultimately gets you to the third one. I think there's a building there. It's like, okay, you've got to be filled with the Spirit, become strong, Christ dwells, then everybody starts grasping, understanding, appreciating, and finally, the fullness. We experience the fullness of God. There's a progress there. And like I said, I'll, I'll hold back and talk about that in a little bit. But before I do, I'm going to do a little excursus, a little deviation, if you will, before we move on and unpack that. Because um, I want us to take a look at chapters 1, 2, and 3, actually all of Ephesians, and, and think of it in another way than we probably thought of it, the way we normally think of it when we read it in English. And that is to think of it in terms of the plural and not just the singular. Because we tend to read Ephesians in every letter, frankly. When Paul writes to anybody, we tend to personalize it and make it individual. That comes natural. We don't have to be taught to do that. 
However, and, and frankly, if you do that, you're not wrong. All the stuff we've talked about in chapters 1, 2, and 3, they do, a, they do belong to the individual. But, but there's more. He's talking to a group. He's talking to a collection of believers in Ephesus. He starts out right there in the very first verse of the book. To the saints, or holy ones, and the faithful ones, it's plural. To the saints and faithful ones in Ephesus. And he continues throughout that whole fantastic sentence of verses 3 through 14, all plural. You'll see we's throughout. But all the you's are plural too. So when it says, like in verse 4, that he chose you to be holy and blameless, it actually says he chose you all. He chose a holy and blameless us is one way you could translate it. When he had in mind in heaven was before the foundation of the world, I'm not looking at necessarily individuals. I'm looking at a collection of people, a holy and blameless people of God. And then you see all the us's that are coming up that he, he goes through. He lavished us with grace. He... Um, redeemed us, us, plural. He forgave us. And I would just challenge you to think of it. What does that mean when you think of a group of people being forgiven? A group of people being bought back. Not just me as an individual, but a group, a collection, a community. And we have to, it takes an effort to do this. And I would say, here's, here's two reasons why it takes an effort to do this. Our culture, we're culturally biased to think of individuals. This culture in particular. It's all about you. You do you, right? The commercials say. It's like the thought in our culture, I think our culture may be the most individualistic-minded culture in the history of humankind. I don't, I can't think of another one that, cares less about community and is focused entirely on the self. So the culture is just breathing. It's all you, 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 singular, singular you. So we just it's just the way we think. We read and say everybody's talking about themselves. So when we read the scriptures, first thing we do is talk about ourselves, right? We think it's all about us. But cultures in the past and even cultures around the world are more inclined to think in terms of community than us. So we have, we're at a disadvantage in our culture because we're so individualistically minded that we miss, we actually miss the plurality. Thinking, we don't even think it's in a plurality when we read this. It's, it's like against everything we're taught. Everything, everything that's bombarding us from the culture is like this. And it doesn't help, it does not help that the English language has dropped the plural you. And it to my knowledge, it's the only language in the world that has. If you know Spanish or French or any of the others, they have plural use and singular use. So that when you, they're different words. They don't even sound the same. So when you say this kind of you, everybody's thinking y'all, you. And when you say this kind of you, they're thinking, oh, you're talking about me, not everybody else. There's a distinction in the language. Well, English used to have that. English used to have that. Just pick up an old King James 
16, mm -hmm. 11, 12, whenever it was first published. And what's the famous words everybody sees in King James that they kind of snicker at? The these and the thous. Well, guess what? The these and the thous are the singular yous. They're singular. The yees and yous are the plural. The these and the thous are the singular. So in the King James, when you see how would be thy name in the Lord's Prayer, you're talking to the singular God, right? These and thous, you're talking to singular. If you read, and but when you see the yous and the yees, go ye into all the earth, the Great Commission, that's a plural. All y'all, go out there and do this. That's right. They got a plural text. That's right. The y'all is, is there. That's exactly right. But this is a little interesting plug for the King James. If you have an old King James and you want to know if it's a plural, if you, you want to know a quick whether the, the you you're seeing is a, is a plural or not, look at the King James and see what it is. If it's a the thou, it's singular. If it's a you, ye, it's plural. So like the letters of Timothy and Titus, Paul wrote those to individuals and you'll see a lot of these and thous and those because he was writing specifically to a single person. But when he's writing to the Romans and the Ephesians and the Colossians and the Galatians, you'll see all the use because he's writing to a collection of people. So I'm just saying all that to encourage you when you read these letters it's helpful. You're going to naturally think of it yourself. That just happens. But oftentimes there's another message that you, another theme you can see overriding that if you think in the plural. And what I'm asking you now is let's let's look at Ephesians one through three. Actually, Ephesians one through five. I'm going to take you all the way through five on this theme of the the plural, the community that. Paul's addressing, and I, I started you out there. He starts out with plural, holy ones and faithful ones in Ephesus. And he chose us before the foundation of the world to be a holy and blameless us. I like to translate it that way. <laughs> to be a group of people who are all holy and blameless together. One big collection of people, holy and blameless. And he tends to use, I'm going to go through these three metaphors that Paul uses in this letter, and actually they're throughout other letters and other places in Scripture. The first one I'll mention is the body, and he actually uses that word first. If you remember in Ephesians 1.22, at the conclusion of his first prayer, he said that the Father gave Christ to be head of the church, his body. The fullness, which, oh, that's a clue. That has something to do with the prayer. But the body. So he starts with this idea of body right there at the end of chapter 1. He kind of leaves it hanging. He doesn't really explain it at that point. He puts out a very interesting statement that makes you go, huh. And then he goes into the amazing saving work of God in chapter 2, the amazing abolishing of the division, dividing wall in chapter 2. Two also, and the creating of a of a building. He kind of drops the body metaphor for a bit. Um, 
Although I, I will say I, I listed the one new man in 215 kind of hints at it. He took the two that were far and near and he created one new man, he uses a kind of a anthropological idea. But I'm just mentioning that. It's just really brief. But he does kind of say it again in last week's section 3.6 when he said the mystery is that the Gentiles are now, co he, made, he actually invented the word, co-bodied with the rest of us. Co-bodied, you guys have the same body as, you're members of the same body as the rest of us. So he said it a few times, but it isn't until chapter 4 where this body metaphor goes all out. He just lays it out there. And he starts it off in uh, chapter 4, verse uh, 4, in his famous statement on unity. Maintaining, be diligent to maintain, be diligent to the New American Standard. Be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. One body is the first of the seven that he lists. One body. And then he lists. One spirit, one faith, one hope, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all. He lists the rest. But he starts with body. So the first, and it's frankly, in the list, it's the only one of the seven that's, that you can see. The rest of them are abstract, invisible concepts like hope. You don't see hope, right? The spirit, the Father, the Lord, who's no longer present with us. Well, I guess baptism there's a sense in which we can experience that one too. But the body is the first one. So he says we're one body. We're unified. One body. It's, it's a representation of unity. But the other beautiful thing about the body, it's also beautiful. It's the representation of diversity. Because a body requires different parts to function, right? So there's the, the beautiful, that's what the metaphor is really good for. It's showing how diversified people can be one. Right, you can have one person who's the pinky and another person who's the belly button and another person who's the toenail, and they're all part of the same body, but they're very, very different from each other. But they have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. They have one faith. They have the same core truths holding them together. They're part of the same structure, the body. Mm -hmm. Universal one body with all its divisions. That's I, I struggle with that, right? Because you know, as I look mm -hmm. to what God's word says, we should be unified, but we're 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 not. Now, you know, again, I can I can accept another person in another whatever Presbyterian or a saved Lutheran or what, whatever, but but you know, it, it's just the differences. There yeah. isn't a whole lot. <laughs> when you look at it, it doesn't always seem like there's great unity in the body of Christ today. And in some ways there is, and in other ways it's, it's a struggle. So sometimes when it plays out the unity, I'll have to admit I, I struggle with what I see and what the Word says. That's right. And I believe that's one reason he wrote this letter, was to help us grasp it in this prayer. That's why he prayed for that. Can I ask a question? Mm-hmm. Is there, because I sometimes even reading the word, and even in this book sometimes, I kind of go back and forth with that very thought, the local or different places and the yeah. word is 
I guess you just need to do deeper study into... As to which is local and which is yes. not? Is that what you're asking? Yes. When is he referring to local and when he's referring to universal? And Yeah, it's not super clear. Yeah. Not at all. Okay. And um, he's talking to a local body in Ephesus, but then it also, the letter circulates to other local bodies. I, In a sense, I think he's writing to a local body and he's expecting us to work it out in the local body that we're in. How it all fits together with the Presbyterians and the Seventh-day Adventists or the Catholics that might believe or the Mormons that might even have faith in Jesus somehow, I don't know. It's not. It's kind of, once again, it's a little bigger than bigger than our pay grade to figure that out of how that all happens. But the, he's, he's saying, in chapter 4, he's saying, be diligent to maintain the unity. And he's talking to them. And, and if you go further in chapter 4, he's saying, speak to one another in love. Speak truth to one another in love. We don't. We're not in a position to speak truth and love to somebody, a church in China, can't even speak the language, let alone. I mean, we're not called to really be united with them, but we are called to be united with the people right around us immediately. So, I think that's it's helpful just to keep it keep it local, so you can apply it. But the prayer, actually, the prayer that we're going to go through is to help us grasp how big it is. And recognize this is bigger than we realize. There are saved Lutherans, amazing as that could be. Martin Luther was saved. <laughs> I actually, just, just an aside, I was saved in a Lutheran church. So I could say I'm a saved Lutheran. Um, I don't, obviously I'm not a part of that church anymore, but that's where I first heard the gospel and believed, was in a Lutheran church of all places. So God can save his people, wherever the gospel's preached. So, getting back to my notes about the body. Let's, I'm going to look at that. Somebody, why don't somebody read Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. This is a classic text. If you have Ephesians 4, 15, and 16. Go ahead. Brothers, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And there's the classic text in Ephesians, and he writes about that in 1 Corinthians and all kinds in Romans. The body, speaking the truth to one another in love, the body builds itself up in love. So that's what the body is. There's this whole idea of the body. There's a diversity in the body, yet it's one. And, and chapter 4's big command there in verse 3 is, make every effort to maintain the unity of this body. Make that your priority within the body. you got to be you got to do this because it doesn't come easy because it also says right before make every effort, it says do so in gentleness and humility and with patience because you're going to need it. Because when we're with in close proximity with other believers who aren't the same, when the toenail gets close to the uh, 
belly button. They, they don't necessarily like each other. So you have to make an effort. Yes. So if you want to think of like yeah. whatever it is, uh, whatever divided them, Evangelicals and Lutherans or, or whatever, we're we're not nearly as far apart as Jews and Gentiles were. And so when he's, when he's telling point. them to be unified, good point. I mean, they're coming from totally different backgrounds and understandings. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, Jews. And, well, you see it the, the struggle in Galatians when Peter messes up and Paul mm-hmm. has to straighten them out and stuff like that. So, you know, it clearly is universal in that sense. He's telling two people, groups that have a hard time aligning because of their backgrounds to, to, be, to, be, to be to be patient with one another and yeah. to be one body. Right. So yeah, you're right. In a sense, there it is. And when we have opportunity, I suppose, to do that, it's make every effort to do it. But we're called to practice locally. I think. So yeah, I don't think that's a good point. We don't necessarily worry about the people that we don't interact with. Exactly. We do interact. So yeah, like, we're, he I put us. Accept you as a saved Lutheran because you know you're here in our local church kind of thing. So. Exactly. So you got to put up with the people you're with. That's where I mean, it's it's not hard being patient with somebody you never meet. <laughs> well, also in our day and age, we choose the church that we attend. True. So when you choose a church that you attend, you found something there that that you have in common with the majority of usually that's what that's one of the reasons that drives it right well one thing i liked when i when i went through uh romans by uh oh gosh i can't think of the one of the famous guys but anyway i did the roman study and he said in his church that he really appreciated that uh, people following calvin and armenian could worship together which Mm. i thought was pretty powerful because Mm -hmm. i would say that's just generally not the experience of a, a lot of churches i mean a lot of times Mm-hmm. You get a, a few sermons here on the sovereignty of God, and then people wake up and thought, "Wow, I don't believe that. I'm gone." Mm-hmm. Right? That's and, true. Yeah, That's true. So it was interesting uh, that he, he made that comment in, in the commentary. Yeah, yeah, it was Lose, interesting. Move, okay. It was interesting going to a seminary where you've got a variety of thoughts. And, you know, you have a. It was just interesting and just like, okay. And they would actually have us write papers. Okay, here's what here's what Wesley said and here's what Whitfield said. Um, you write what you think is right. Who's right? Because they're arguing with each other about Calvinism and Arminianism. And we would write. And some of us wrote Wesley's right, others wrote Whitfield's right, and we would and the and, and we would get along in, in the academic sense. It's not easy. But it can possibly be done, yes. Just push back a little bit on what Jimmy's saying. So I think the rubber really hits the road in the local church. Yeah, absolutely. But then right. I think because we have access to so much information about people who don't necessarily agree with us, we can fill our minds with ideas that might not be all fully formed and then we have you know, like a stereotype basically is mm. coming into contact with someone from that other group and either we don't know anything or we have this kind of one-sided not fully developed view so 
Yeah. Well, that's why we have one spirit. One Holy Spirit. The one spirit that's in you should be in unity with mm-hmm. the spirit that's in me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it should be. <laughs> but it make every effort. <laughs> one of the things I learned a long time ago is that should is a shame word. It could be, ought to be, but anyway, except Every time I hear should, it comes to my mind uh, like 30 years ago. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, A little bit askew from what we've been talking about, but in my study of this scripture, um, these verses, would it be fair to say, because it says that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. Mm -hmm. So that's the all that Mm -hmm. we're talking about. Uh, the breadth and height, and to know the love of Christ. Would it be fair to say, so I, I, I think about this, that really, truly, without us, without unity, without the body, we're really, truly not going to be able to comprehend the full, the, the, the breadth and the height and the depth. Of I think you're right. I think that's why Paul's praying it. Yeah. Why would he pray it otherwise? But I mean, that's certainly such an argument for why you need to be connected to the body that you're truly not going to yeah. understand. You're not going to understand the to the, know to know the love to know how great God's love is. You can know how great it is, perhaps to you as an individual. But when you're in a church and you hear and see this God's work in others, but you're only you know, know a lot more. You're not going to. You're only going to know so. But you'll know more. The point is. True, but you'll know more. Yeah, yeah, that's the point. If you're with others, you're going to know more. If you're by yourself, you're not going to know a whole lot. You'll know all your personal experience, and that's all you got to go on. It's legit. It's real, perhaps. It's it's, but it's not the same as knowing the love with all the saints. And I'll I'll get to that some more. I just want to keep going. There's the metaphor of the body. The other metaphor that he brings up in chapter 5, I'll call the metaphor of the wife or the bride. If you know the scriptures of husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands. He refers to Christ and the body, Christ being the head of the church, as if the church is like his wife. He doesn't actually use the word wife, but the way he's talking about it, it sounds a whole lot like like a wife. <laughs> so there's this metaphor of there's a relationship between the head and his body, which is like a husband to his wife, because the husband's to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And the church should submit to her husband as the, or not, the church should submit to Christ as the wife should submit to her husband. That there's, um, there's an analogy there. There's something we can learn and that our marriages should reflect this love relationship. I think this metaphor speaks of the depth of Christ's love. Like the, the first metaphor kind of shows the diversity and unity. This, this shows more 
Christ really, really, really loves us a lot, like better than any husband could ever love their wife. And therefore, husbands and wives, look to that as an example and make that your model and be encouraged by that and, and apply what you know of that to your relationships. And that's what chapter 5, verses 22 through 32, which most of you are probably familiar with that. That was exactly what uh, Pastor Trey went over at my wedding, those very verses. Um, and then the other metaphor, which I've saved to last because it's the one he's actually referring to in the immediate context more specifically than the others, is that of the temple the dwelling place. And that's what he, um, I think he, I listed the first hint of that was in chapter 1, verse 18, when we went through guts, when he's praying that we would know the wealth of his inheritance in the saints, that unusual phrase of how could God have an inheritance in the saints. And I believe the clue is because the inheritance, his inheritance in the saints is that the saints are his dwelling place. They're going to be, ultimately. And they are, in a sense, now, spiritually. So God has an inheritance in us because that's where he chooses to live. He chooses to take the community of that he's had eternally with the Father, Son, and Spirit. They're going to move in with a bunch of created beings who happen to be the body of Christ and dwell with them and we with him. So the, the inheritance, I believe, is speaking more to the dwelling place of God than the stuff that comes, the, benef the, the material stuff, which is what we usually think of as modern materialistic Americans. We're more concerned about grandma's or grandpa's old car and house and how we can sell it and get money for ourselves. And we are, oh, that's the place I'm going to actually live in. That's not as common in our thinking. But back then, that's what the inheritance was. The inheritance you received from your father and your mother, especially in Old Testament times, was the land that God gave them. Rolls down generation after generation, stays in your family. So God's chosen an inheritance to be in his holy dwelling place of his saints. So he, he, he hints at it in chapter 118, but then he obviously gets, obviously fleshes it out at the end of chapter 2. We're joined together into a holy temple in a dwelling place. Why don't somebody read chapter 2, 19 through 22, and let's review that. And you can hear the, the construction metaphor loud and clear through, through this. Anybody have that? Got it? Yeah. Go ahead. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And, and go to the end of the so, chapter, yeah. In, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So there it is. And there's the magic word, dwelling place. 
temple dwelling place. We're being built together as a structure. So Christ, who tore down the dividing wall in his death, is constructing a not only a body for himself, but he's also it's, he's characterized as a temple and a dwelling place. And the temple is more like the sacred set aside for a purpose that glorifies God, which kind of fits with the word holy one or saint. Holy ones serve in temples. The dwelling place speaks more of the family nature of it. It's a place to live, dwell. It's where the children dwell with their father. So you have this building that not only is a sacred, holy place that is in awe of God and and God chooses to live there and reign there, if you will, but he also dwells with personal relationships with this body. It's the dwelling place of God in the spirit. And with that in view, let's revisit the prayer. Because right after that verse that Kay just read, remember, verses 2 through 13 are like a little parenthesis. So if you just sort of like skip from 1 down to 14 and realize that Paul has just given us a construction metaphor of a building. And now let's read the prayer in light of this architectural edifice and see if we can flesh out some some themes that maybe you didn't see there before. Maybe you didn't see them there. But if this is an architectural edifice, the first thing, clue, is in, I think, 17, when he says he's praying for Christ to dwell. And remember, the verse 22 said he's creating a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. And here's Paul praying that there would be strength and power through the Spirit for Christ to dwell. Now, what if that dwelling place is is what he just said? It's it's a place to dwell, for Christ to dwell. It's, it's not the individual he has in mind, per se. Perhaps he has more in mind the community that he's building, the building that he's building. Let's, he's praying that this building, this community of believers would be built up in strength through the Spirit so that Christ can dwell there. He, if this is the case, then what he's praying for is that the Ephesian church would be, would be a legit church, would be one of the, the local expressions that adequately demonstrates God's work in the world that he's doing in in Philippi and Antioch and Rome, you Ephesians, I'm praying that you guys will be the legit church that I already claimed you are theologically in the chapters 1, 2, and all the way up to 3.13. I'm praying that it becomes a reality. If it isn't, it becomes more of a reality that Christ may dwell in your midst corporately. So when you get together... Remember Jesus said where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. I think he's praying that this 
The two or three or more are gathered in Ephesus. He's praying that that would be a dwelling place for, for Christ and God, the Father, through the Spirit. So you think of it more as the dwelling is, he's probably not praying that it would dwell in your individual hearts because theologically he does if you're truly a believer, but that he would dwell corporately in this dwelling place that he died to produce and build. And then carry the metaphor forward, the building, as you go through. When it says at the end of 317, in love, and it says, usually in most English translations, it says rooted and grounded in love. Now, rooted and grounded is, is okay, but the words also have architectural overtones. It could be fixed and founded. It's like a foundation that's built. Not just soil that you grow up in, but it's, it's like if you stick with the structural metaphor, perhaps it should be translated fixed and founded or like a foundation is laid. Like this in love is a foundation upon which this dwelling place is being built. And we have reason to believe that that might be what he means also because this in love phrase he's used before. He's spoken clearly about earlier. He actually first said it, the in love phrase, the in love prepositional phrase there was first mentioned in chapter 1 at the end of, is it 4? Where he says, that you've been adopted, and then at the oh no, right before it says you've been adopted, it says in love. In love, you've been adopted. In love, before the foundation of the world, you've been adopted. You were adopted. In love. So the father had in love in mind when he chose his family, right? So the in love was like a foundation of what God the Father was was motivating him to do what he did in the first place. He in love wanted to adopt created beings to be part of this family. And then, of course, explicitly in Ephesians 2, where it says, uh, keep losing my place in the notes here. Foundation of love. Well, in love, remember what motivated Christ and God the Father in Ephesians 2. i got to look it up myself, <laughs> unless somebody's got it. What first? Uh, like five or s Yeah, about read uh, four, five, and six. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love, love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Right. By grace you have been saved. Because of the great love with which he loved us. There's the motivation, right? He raised us up. He built upon that. It was his love that motivated him to choose us. Chapter 2, it's his love that motivates him to make us alive, raise us up with Christ, seat us with heavenly, heavenly places with Christ, and now, 
I think he's presenting this prayer that this this whole foundation is in love. It's based upon, it's rooted and founded, rooted and grounded, whatever choice of words. It's the foundation for this building is the love of God. The love of God is what he's building upon. And that's why I think he includes the in love in his phrase. That it's a foundation of love. It's a place for Christ to dwell. It's on this foundation of love at the end of chapter 17. But then the next verse, which is the next so that, so that you may grasp with all the saints. So you got the plural, all the saints, all the saints together. This is something, Lois, you were, you were thinking out earlier. Got all the saints together. And I, the word for understand or comprehend, it's, I've translated grasp. It actually is it's a word that means physically grasp, but we use it in this context to mentally grasp. But there's also a word right in front of it that says that you'd be able to comprehend. And that word also has an architectural overtone of being like set in a place. And I think I translated that way. Set in a place to grasp. Like all the saints get together. They're set in their place. And they're able to grasp something together. Like there's a building building up around them. And they're, they're, they're together. And they're like, wow, I can grasp it. Mentally, he's using like a physical metaphor. And what is it that he prays that they would grasp? Breath, height, length, depth. Those are architectural dimensions. So because you're in the right place, maybe right's not the correct word, but you're able, because you're in the right place, can then yeah. understand more God's Yes, love. together with all the saints, you can begin to see just how wide and deep and high and long, not just the love of Christ is, which is what m- most modern English translations say. They, they actually put the word love in this verse. If you notice the ESV and the New American Standard and the King James, the literal ones don't. Love's not in the verse. They, it's added by the NIV and the Holman Christian Standard and all the others. It's actually not there. It's So we, we tend to say, oh, this is just the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God. Well, that's not wrong, but there's something bigger going on here. It's not just the love of God that's high and wide. and It's it's the whole building project of God. It's, it's his whole work in the earth to build this building called the Universal Church. Would be this would be a time for the universal church, but each local church is like a block of it. It's part of it, and if you're in the right place, he's praying that we would be in the right place with the saints we're together with, and be able to see this huge, massive work that God the Father envisioned before the foundation of the world, and He's doing it. He's doing it in your midst, and yes, we can probably see it when we partner with other churches. We can see it in other countries as missionaries go over there and report. It's amazing what God is doing. It's not just the love of God. The love of God is surpassingly great. And actually the next verse says exactly that. So if you do take the love out of this phrase, you've still got the mind-blowing love in the very next verse. So it's not diminishing the fact that the love of God is also this love that we, we see is also surpassingly great and beyond your imagination. It's just that, frankly, 
Love is an abstract concept, and describing it as length and width and breadth and height is a little odd. So he's probably not talking about the concept of love in 17, or is that, am I on the right verse? 18, but he definitely is in 19. 19, that's clear, that the love is surpassingly great. It's beyond, it's beyond your comprehension. In fact, I'll read, I'll read 19 in my translation because he uses, and so know the love of Christ which surpasses. And the word surpasses knowledge is the same word that he used twice before. I've referenced it there when he talked about the surpassingly great power which he works in us who believe in the prayer earlier in chapter 1. And he uses it also up in chapter um, 3. He uses it three places. The same word. So it's and, and the word surpassing means, literally, if you took the two Greek words that were connected, it means thrown beyond. It's like they took the word, the preposition beyond, and they attached it to a word that means thrown. So it's like as far as you can throw it, and even further, it's beyond that. That that's where the love of God goes. It's beyond than you can imagine. Yeah. I love the way you said it in, in your footnote. It means extraordinarily exceeding. There you go. I love that. It's extraordinarily exceeding, surpassing. It's way beyond anything you can imagine. So the love is definitely, definitely out there. But also we're supposed to comprehend the width and the height and the length and the depth. And... um Ah, that reminds me of something my friend John Eady says. I've got to read about 318. Because one thing about Eady is he's, I've told you who this is, and I don't recommend you get the book unless you like to read Greek and Latin. But I think, did you get this book? Yeah. You got it. Yeah. It's still helpful, I'm sure. It's just harder to wade through because it's written in 1854. And um, he's very thorough because he... He looks at every commentator he could find who's ever commented on these verses in Ephesians. And he, he says this, Calvin says this, Augustine says this, and then a bunch of other guys I never heard of says this and that. And, that, and he, he like pieces them all together. He throws them all out. And, and then he says, well, I think this is what it is after all this. And here's why. And he uses grammatical reasons in the Greek because he knows Greek better than most of those guys did, like Augustine he hated Greek. He never read Greek. He read Latin. But read his stuff. It's amazing. So I'm not saying that. Don't read Augustine. But in this one section, when he's talking about the church, what, what, just to give you some facts that love is probably not what's being talked about. In his survey of like the 30 guys who came before him, only about 10 of them think it has to do with the love. The other 20 have other ideas. And it, it's... And some of them are just, God's just amazing. God's height, God's length, God's breadth. It's like, it's, don't limit it just to love. It's how huge God is. But because it's embedded in this architectural metaphor, he thinks he's primarily talking about the massive project of the church. I'm going to read what he says. The church has length. That is, it stretches from east to west. It has breadth, that is, it reaches from the equator to the poles. It is In its depth, it descends to Christ, its cornerstone and basis, and in its height, it is exalted to heaven. There is a measurement of area, breadth, length, 
and a measurement of altitude, height, and depth. May not the former refer to its size and growing vastness, embracing as it will do so many myriads of so many nations and spanning the globe? And may not the latter depict its glory, for the planned structures and materials alike illustrate the fame and character of the, its divine builder and occupant, while its lofty turrets are bathed and hidden from view in the radiant splendor of heaven. And with which, with what reed shall we measure this stately building? How shall we grasp its breadth, compute its length, explore its depth, and scan its height? Only by the discipline described in the previous context, by being strengthened by the Spirit, by having Christ within us, and by being rooted and grounded in love, this ability to measure the church needs the assistance of the divine Spirit of Him who forms this habitation of God so that we may understand its nature, feel its self-expansion, and believe the glorious things spoken of it. So, yeah, <laughs> Paul's style. So he he went off on and he writes like that. So if you don't like to, if those words are too big for you, don't don't bother. That is so good because when you're exegeting surpasses knowledge and the fullness of God, I am thinking, how do I know this surpassing knowledge? How am I supposed to comprehend this fullness? Because I feel like I don't. And then it reminds me of that Paul is writing to the church as a whole. Not that I can't certainly benefit from that, but right. it's a mystery. I'm sorry. It's a mystery. And that's kind of why I went through this exercise today. It was to You read this prayer. We believe it. We love it. We sing about it. It's helpful to think of it in more than just an individual way. It makes a lot more sense, actually, if you start to realize he's praying for a community to be built up. And the final reason at the end of 19, so that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. That's like the ultimate goal of this grasping that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. And this, this connects back to what he said at the end of chapter 1 when he used that mysterious term at the end of chapter 1. He gave Christ to be head of the church, over the church, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That last phrase is really Interesting, And I think this prayer helps us begin to grasp what Paul was trying to say. The church, Paul literally says at the end of Ephesians 1.22 that the church is not only the body, it's the fullness. He says it's the fullness of him who fills all in all, which is God. God fills all in all. But the church distinguishes in some sense, is the fullness, meaning that the church is the place where the fullness of God is known in a way it can't be known anywhere else. No individual can know it this way. It's only revealed in this corporate entity that God is mysteriously building, I might add. It's hard to understand, but Paul's praying that we would 
get it. He's praying, get this, get this. The fullness, the ultimate request of his prayer is that you, corporately, you, local church in Ephesus, might experience the fullness of God in your midst. The fullness of God. God will move in on you and you're going to see God in ways that you never imagined before. You're going to understand them in ways you never thought possible. Far beyond. That's the ultimate request. That your church, Ephesus, will be filled with all the fullness of God. Your church, Ephesians, is going to be the fullness that I described at the end of chapter 1 that ultimately will be revealed on that day. Your local expression will experience fullness, the fullness of God, the indwelling presence of God, the reality of God. You're going to know God in a way, height, depth, length, width, surpassing love, that you can only know in the company of others who are doing chapters 4, 5, and 6. It's not like you just show up and he shows up. There's work for us to do in the next few chapters. But this is his prayer. You might be filled with all the fullness of God. And then if you read the last two verses... Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Exactly. In the church. So, I don't think we... That's a word we, we slip over pretty quickly. I mean, glory yes. is kind of out of this world. Yes. We, in English, just go over glory. I mean, glory is like a speed bump for us where it's really Mount Everest. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then the other is the time bound uh, to all generations. Generations forever and ever, amen. And that's exactly, you're, you're basically making the point there. This is how he closes it out. He closes it out with a praise. This isn't a request. This is him in worship. And he's saying that a lot of the, he's just saying, now to the one who is able to do beyond all things, the way I translated it, able, now to the one who is able beyond all things to do infinitely more than we ask or think. Just another way of saying what's already in your English. It's not like what you got's wrong. It's way beyond, way, way beyond, according to the power that works in us, and that's his power in us corporately. We think of it, oh, it's God's power in me. Yeah, there's power in you, but imagine the power. How do you imagine the power in the community? <laughs> there's, there's, there's power in the church corporately when the fullness is dwelling there for sure. According to that, to him be the glory, as Jim Teplick just said, and he says the word in the church. And if you're reading this individually, that in the church doesn't seem to fit. But if you're reading this corporately, this is a structure, a building that he's praying be built. That makes perfect sense. Isn't that the whole point? That's the point. That the glory would be in the church and in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus being the head of the church, which is the body. They're together. There's union. May this glory of God be revealed in the church. Be there in every generation. Not just the Ephesians, but to everyone whom Christ calls to himself forever and ever. Amen. So I have a quick two-sentence manifestation of the glory of church that I want to share. Just a real... Okay. My father came to Christ 11 days before he died, a lifelong Catholic. 
Kurt Craven for 45 years. But I was on a plane uh, next to a woman who was a believer, and we ended up having uh, over an hour of conversation on how to share the gospel with my dad. And then I ended up at a church where there was an invitation for prayer, and I ended up going to a prayer room. And then I had a le- I did share the gospel with my dad, but I didn't have a chance to follow up. And there was a Baptist black woman minister assigned to the Jewish facility that my dad was staying in that shared the gospel with my dad. Oh my goodness! So that was the church at work. There's the church at work. <laughs> Wasn't even a Lutheran. Amazing. No. <laughs> but I was so happy that you know they said that they said this chaplain was assigned to this. You know, you never know what kind of chaplain you're going to get. And so I said, can I send this letter to this chaplain? Will, will this person read it? And so she she actually read it to my dad. And then actually in the, in the follow-up, my, my father came to Christ. And, um, that's the church at work. That's the glory. And um, I'm not going to, obviously, they've let out, so I'm going to bring this to an end. But that little last connection I wrote in my notes. If you've never seen this in Revelation 21, I request you take a look. Revelation 21 is the picture of the glorious New Jerusalem described with streets of gold and pearly gates and all that. Well, there's a, right at the beginning, there's this little often skipped over phrase the whole chapter. <laughs> but let me let me do this. Revelation twenty one. Twenty one. Actually, why don't somebody read the first few verses there? You'll hear it when it comes up. If you have Revelation twenty one, just read this. I've got it. Go for it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Right there. The city is the bride. Adorned for her husband. Go ahead. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So John puts the same picture in place at the conclusion of the last book written builds upon Paul's work here. This building place, and actually that building is called the bride, the dwelling place. Think of that building place not so much as a physical building but or the place we're going to live in someday, but as the church, the wife of Christ. It's right there. What Revelation 21 is saying is what Paul's praying for in Ephesians 3. It'll make you think about Revelation 21 a little differently than you normally do. It's not just a nice pearly you know, gate place to go walk in. It's, it's actually us. The place, it's a picture of us. Whatever we're going to be in that place, that's, that's, 
that's who Christ is marrying. That's the bride. That's the church. That's the body. It's the dwelling place. It's all, all the same thing. Just explained in rather apocalyptic visionary beauty. So with that, I want to bring it to a close. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for revealing yourself through your word. I pray that these words would not return void and that it would inspire in them a desire to study your word even more and to build into one another so they can grasp just how high and just how deep and just how wide you are, your church is, and how surpassingly great, exceedingly beyond anything we can think or imagine your love is. And may we experience your fullness in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Jim.